when they look at these pieces, they don't have any identifying features. You look at them and you can think initially like, all right, I had acne. That's bad acne. That's terrible. Now, when we go forward into some of the other ones, like ichthyosis vulgaris, which is also known more commonly as alligator skin, that it's exactly the same situation. No, you've never had alligator skin, but this person that did have alligator skin was extremely ostracized. In fact, ichthyosis vulgaris was, there was a person that was in a, in the freak shows in the forties and actually probably up to the sixties that, you know, that was the only job he could get because he was socially ostracized. And so I hope that when people look at that work, they're able to make that connection of, well, acne is no big deal. I had that. Oh, this is another thing that's not contagious, but yet why are we socially ostracizing this person? Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 229th episode, I'm excited to be joined once again by Donovan Widmere, who made an appearance on the podcast back in 2014. We've got a lot of catching up to do. Now, Donovan is a metalsmith originally from the Pittsburgh area. Currently, he is acting as the chair of the art and design department at the University of North Dakota and living in Fargo where he works and makes all sorts of interesting work. His most recent series explores various skin conditions and catalogs them, and we talk all about that and the various processes that he's using to recreate various skin conditions uh, with enamels and as you're checking out the work again it's super detail oriented and fascinating so i hope you're as excited as i am donovan's also a mentor of mine a friend so it's great to have him back on the podcast to discuss his work be sure and check out his instagram dw widmer and follow him if you are new to the podcast, check out some of the archived episodes on studiobreak.com. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their website so you can find more information. You can, of course, listen right there in the default player or just click those links and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. So you can always check out interviews while you're working in the studio and listening to something to give your mind something to think about. Of course, if you like the podcast, be sure and Follow us on our various social media platforms. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And with those quick announcements, we're going to jump right into this interview with Donovan Widmere. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Donovan Widmere, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been far too long, you know, uh, six years, six years. So yep, it has been exactly six years. And if anybody wants to go back, I think it was the first interview of 2014. And it's ironic because I was saying to you earlier, I feel kind of lost where I'm at in terms of what I'm doing, or at least maybe I'm spending so much time figuring out how to document demos and, you know, drawings and stuff like that, that when it comes time to diving back into the studio, I, I feel like I don't have the time. And then, of course, I visit your work on Instagram and see a 193-hour log on a work, and I'm like, geez, uh, maybe it's about finding the time. <laughs> Please do keep in mind, I'm on developmental leave this year. So, like, last time we talked, I'd just come off of developmental leave. And this time, 
you know, I've had this, this, this wonderful experience this entire year of just my day consists of drinking coffee until nine or nine thirty, and then walking down to my studio and working until five or seven, whenever I decided to quit. So yeah, when you see 193 hours, <laughs> um, in what, what did I say? Uh, in four more days. I won't be doing that. <laughs> right, right. Well, again, just to make sure that we cover a little bit of background, you're originally from the Pittsburgh area, if I'm not mistaken, yeah? Yes, technically Belvernon. It's a small town, about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on your choice of the speed limit, south of Pittsburgh. You talked a little bit about the first interview. You know, you had some you know, exposure to the arts growing up, Your your parents... Both were people that make and I think particularly kind of more like towards the craft side of things. They did craft shows Mm -hmm. and, you know, took you to the uh, Carnegie Museum and all sorts of stuff like that. So you kind of grew up around art and then I guess kind of fell into it because you described yourself kind of as a dumb 18 year old or something like that. So (laughs) I still hold to that one. Well, I think a lot of us make that choice at that age, right? Like, let's dive into all this debt. You know, this is great. Well, I think uh, as an educator, I've always had an issue with this. I think it's ridiculous that we ask an 18-year-old to choose a career that you're going to do for the rest of your life. So, yeah. Sure, sure. (laughs) Well, so kind of lead us through that a little bit too. So where did you go to undergrad? And and you were always like a fine arts medals person. Yes. I went to undergrad at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. It's an amazing school for art. Art is one of their largest departments and programs at that university. I chose medals because I thought it was one of the most practical mediums. You could take it several different ways. I could take it as I can work as a bench jeweler. I can work as a production jeweler and do craft shows or I could make fine art. So it just seemed practical to me. Sure. Sure. When you read interviews about people that talk about crafts, especially whenever you get into people that are into ceramics, ceramicists love to talk about their medium. They talk about the plasticity of the clay and the, the fire, the various firing techniques and they can go on and on for it. So what I think is interesting about people that are, into the what we kind of call traditionally call fine crafts is we love our medium mm-hmm. and we have a very uh, big attachment and commitment to it and so metals for me made a lot of it, it just I had that kind of a connection with the medium and the potential subject matter that you could talk about with it. You also kind of described in that first interview as kind of like in graduate school where you started to develop all of your conceptual chops and kind of making your work feel like a fit more outside of just being a, a functional thing or, you know, something that's regurgitating something else. So it seems like, again, from there, you kind of continued to, to build that base and have gone through all sorts of transitions, obviously, that we'll be, you know, talking about at least some of them. But maybe kind of just talk a little bit about some of those experiences. And again, we've got a lot of time to cover, so I don't want to dwell on the past, but I definitely want to make sure that people, you know, can think about some of these experiences that were informative. 
Okay. This is definitely one subject I wanted to talk about in the last, especially because of the last interview. So, you know, obviously with any of the crafts, you can make the objects completely functional utilitarian things and nothing wrong with that. In fact, it should be celebrated and recognized as significant. And then you can also apply fine art strategies to it and make it more content, or I think one of my colleagues calls this type of working as cognitive art making. Mm -hmm. So initially, I was only thinking practically. Graduate school, my mentor, Dennis French, challenged me on a regular basis. I also had some other great mentors like Paul Sacaridis and Gary Justice, who questioned what every rhyme and reason of what I did. And that's, that's the, that's grad school for me. Then we can go back. Cause there's in the last interview, I had just come off of developmental leave and I was, I no longer wanted to make fine art. I only wanted to make craft. Mm-hmm. And I tried that. <laughs> Cause I remember I was listening to that interview. Like I'm so adamant about, um, I'm going to make craft. <laughs> None of this content-driven work. It's going to be. It's going to celebrate the truest essence of fine craft. And then I realized that I have no originality for that. I tried vessel making. All my vessels looked like everybody else's vessels. <laughs> I tried blacksmithing and bladesmithing. There was nothing exceptional about what I was doing. I, I basically spent. I would say four years just experimenting, trying to figure out what I was going to make. Well, and something to think about that though, too, is I think everybody has part of that in their studio practice. You know, I'm, I don't think of myself as a drawer and I know, again, I've been questioned about that term drawer, you know, but there's painters and there's sculptors, right? You know, I made my second portrait, I think since I was an undergraduate student, you know, in this last year. And it was pretty exciting to me because I'm like, wow, I didn't, didn't know I could do all this. And surely there are people that do that much better than I can. But I always think of that as like something that's supplemental, you know? So, you know, I'm sure that there are things in that four years that you brought back into, you know, your, your current work, or at least in some capacity, there's some gotta be something that helps guide that or informs it in some way. I'm struggling to, answer that question you use hammers in both of them right okay <laughs> i see where you're going um maybe you break out the really really fine sandpaper i don't know okay i, I think i know how to interpret this now um, <laughs> so during that time i just tried th- anything that i could think of that would amuse me mm-hmm. i made a bunch of mokume rings just to get better at Mokume. I started doing chasing and repose, which I absolutely hated in grad school. And then I ended up making all my own tools for it. And I got really into it for like a year straight. And none of that work will ever be shown. Maybe it will. I don't know. Probably not. So at each step, whatever occurred to me to try that day, I did. Now, the downside of being an academic artist is... I haven't shown much in the past several years. And that's the downside of having that 
that I think important and crucial time to really evaluate your own art making practices and ideas. That doesn't go over well in, in academia because they want results and results are a number of exhibitions. I immediately jumped to the the light bulb, you know, I believe there was like 8,000 different filaments that were, you know, tested out before it was finally arrived at that one standard mm -hmm. light bulb, you know, so it's kind of similar. How do you expect, you know, this f very specific result without recognizing that that's part of that process, you know, and that's also something that I think about even, and this is tangential now, this could be a very tangential one, I think, uh, yeah. but but, you know, like when it comes to even just reevaluating or reassessing, there was something in our first interview where you were talking a little bit about, you know, there's almost like an apprehensiveness about listening to your own thoughts on something. And I think it's interesting in some regards, because for me, since I'm such a big fan of comedy, a lot of comedians will have to listen to their sets to kind of reformulate their voice or what it is that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that same process has to be involved in some capacity. And it, it's always interesting, too, because it might be something very subtle for you that's huge for you that other people see as this, you know, like not doing anything different there, you know. Right. There's like subtle changes that are profound to you. And there are huge changes. Both results can happen. So I know you want to get into the we're going to be getting into the newest work. So I will just start by saying I tried all of these different experiments and technically I made the first skin piece in 2016, 17, mm -hmm. because whenever I technically made the first skin disease piece, I realized that I have to have a clear idea or message that I'm trying to communicate. That type of thinking intellectually stimulates me. And this might get me hate mail for this one, but making pure fine craft doesn't do it for me. Doesn't satisfy that side of my brain. I think that makes sense to anybody. You know, there's always going to be something that is appealing to you, whether you're a fan of Ozark or not, or <laughs> as I'm looking through these, uh, these pieces that I'm seeing, you know, going back, I, of course, think of, I think, a really old piece from your graduate school days where you made like a little Jackson Pollock or something like that. That was like an enamel piece. And so when I start seeing paints out in your studio uh, setups and all these tests for skin tones, I'm like, oh, man, he's a painter or something. <laughs> uh, it was a Rothko, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How spiritual. Yes. So... Let's go back for a second. When I went to undergrad, I actually technically, well, I wanted to be a painter because of every single trope about painters, true and false, intrigued me. And I thought I was pretty good. And then I saw some of the painters, my peers, and it was like, okay, I'm out of here. Can't do this. Thank God metals is working out for me. <laughs> um, and actually, let's go back to grad school. I hated enamels. Dennis used enamels a lot in his work at that time, and, and he was very good at it. And he told me I should try it, and I just absolutely hated it. Enamels are they are very finicky. They're very precise 
firing times and colors and so <laughs> so when I started the enamels there was a steep learning curve for me which part of that experimentation period was that's what was great is I would just try things and see what would happen and see if I could get good at it yes so I began enameling I don't consider myself an enamelist mm-hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure most enamelists wouldn't consider me an enamelist <laughs> but I started using enamels and if for those of you that don't know it's the process of taking powdered glass putting it into a kiln and melting and you have two types of enamels there's transparent and opaques and I use almost solely transparents so as I started trying to develop the skin just the the color of the skin it was a lot of different colors on test tiles and took me I'd say three to six months before I could consistently get a realistic Caucasian skin tone. Break down where did this come from in terms of just this specific endeavor? Because, you know, we I definitely want to talk more about the process this time. I feel negligent from last time. But, you know, what where did this come from? Like I said, I, as I'm writing down notes, I'm like literally writing down all these types of skin conditions and you can see like an evolution and exploration of all that. I was also doing a lot of chasing and repose at the time. And I was trying to make realistic body parts. Cause I, I was kind of interested in this idea of what does it mean to fragment the body? Cause it kind of fetishizes it. That's what photographs can do. That's what paintings can do. You know, it's not it's not a new subject by by any means. But then I also thought about like, what does it mean to wear it? And then also, what if you take the parts that nobody wants to talk about and wear it like a badge? So uh, initially it was eyes. That's pretty standard. I did navels. Uh, they're just like I probably made seven or eight navels, different types, innies, outies, mid-range, obese, skinny. And navels out of context are really disturbing, by the way. <laughs> just, just just, just, to put that out there, like you remove that from its context of the stomach, it's a little unnerving. Then I started doing nipples. Then I started making anuses for about a year. It's normal, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's normal. Why not? <laughs> I'll never show that work because I really don't want to have the conversation about that work, like all of the negative things that can occur because of making that type of work. But as I did that, what's important, and the real whole reason I'm telling that story, because I hate telling that story, is because as part of that, I started to look at these things as specimens. And you know this, your listeners don't. I am an avid collector of antiques and more specifically of real and fake oddities and medical specimens. Uh, My favorite museum in the entire world is the Mutter. If you're ever in Philadelphia, go there twice. You have to. It's amazing. And this all leads up to how I ended up here. So at the Mutter, one of my favorite stations is this case full of wax 
faces with different skin conditions. They're beautifully done. So amazingly done. And so I started to put all this together that I love collecting this stuff. And it's all over the house. I describe my decorating style as this is going to be good as um, Jack the Ripper lives in a fifties ranch. <laughs> Shannon, my wife describes it as an antique store slash museum. I think mine's funnier. <laughs> so I've surrounded myself with all of this stuff and I finally put it all together that, okay, I want to make, these skin conditions and specimens, these are all the things that I love. And then when I really started to think about skin conditions, initially I started out with ones that were common. I mean, who, who didn't have acne? So initially it really started out as I was trying to pick non-contagious skin conditions and, and recreate them in enamels. Now, Here's where we're going to go down the academic route. So there's two reasons. One, I wanted non-contagious because we as, a, as, as an observer, seeing somebody, you go to a restaurant, even a fast food restaurant, and the person has a severe case of psoriasis. And they're ringing you up. It's very hard not to have that knee-jerk reaction of that ah, uh, and backing away and thinking you're going to get it, even though everything in your brain already knows it's not contagious. Acne, same thing. The media constantly tells us, how many commercials do you see about the man or woman having to cover themselves up because it's so embarrassing that they can't go out in public because they have pimples or they have psoriasis or eczema and you know by the end of the commercial she he or she is finally able to wear a pair of shorts right so there's this there's this terrible negative media portrayal i view these brooch they're they're all brooches well that's not true actually there's some necklaces now but most of them were brooches are in the original idea and that's a reference to cameos and if you don't know the history of cameos, they're as early as the Romans. They're a form of portrait, carved portraiture. And they go all the way up until the advent of the camera. At that point, the camera replaces the portrait. And then they kind of fall out of style and up until, what is it? Because their height was the Renaissance, but then they come back in vogue in like the 20s and 30s is an item of prestige and, and, you know, to show off how much money you have. I also think of these brooches that I'm making as cameos because they are a form of portraiture. Now, there's a wonderful art historian, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to remember her name. I read her her uh, PhD thesis, and she developed the term skin portraiture. And what she said that several artists have been doing for the past, I don't know how many ever years, were fragmenting the body and doing portraiture that 
just focused on the skin and removed most of the identifying characteristics of the person. So, i.e., you have no face, you have no concept of gender. The only thing you have is concept of race. And as a result, what she argues is that that breaks down the barrier between the me, not me. So what I'm hoping that people experience is when they look at these pieces, they don't have any identifying features. You look at them and you can think initially like, all right, I had acne. That's bad acne. That's terrible. Now, when we go forward into some of the other ones, like ichthyosis vulgaris, which is also known more commonly as alligator skin, that it's exactly the same situation. No, you've never had alligator skin, but this person that did have alligator skin was extremely ostracized. In fact, ichthyosis vulgaris was, there was a person that was in a, in the freak shows in the forties and actually probably up to the sixties that, you know, that was the only job he could get because he was socially ostracized. And so I hope that when people look at that work, they're able to make that connection of, well, acne is no big deal. I had that. Oh, this is another thing that's not contagious, but yet why are we socially ostracizing this person? Did any of that just actually make sense? Yeah, I am actually very <laughs> proud of myself because I, at some point in my notes, I have all these little cryptic question marks about things. Um, and aside from like fragility or vulnerability, I have portraits, question mark. You know, these are in a way kind of talking about, like you're saying, like these fragments are talking about this maybe larger person by kind of removing all of that context of a person. It's just much more about that thing. But I especially like that idea of it being universal, too. You know, like skin, it's vulnerable. It's susceptible. And, you know, I can't help but think, too, like if we think about our current uh, crisis that we're living through, you know, the idea that we're in invincible. You know, if you go back to that 18-year-old and, you know, <laughs> try to convince uh, that 18-year-old the future looks like um, – you know, in a way, I, I think that vulnerability is something that we've really been kind of exposed to is how vulnerable we are. Mm -hmm. Well, skin's skin is how we experience the world. If you really think about it, and it's how the world experiences us. I'm not the person that came up with this. I, I read this. Several authors have written about this. Our skin is how we present ourselves to other people. And it's how we ourselves experience life. And so you can look at a person and if you really wanted to, your, your skin becomes a visual history of all of your life experiences. And in some ways, a text that you can evaluate or judge whatever you want to how you want to put it somebody's life choices and experiences like i have massive bags under my eyes because i was a smoker for 20 some years i have two huge well one huge scar one smaller scar in my throat from thyroid cancer i've had psoriasis i've had acne i've had 
two scars on my knee from having a bone chip removed. Like I have stretch marks because I don't exercise as much as I should. And I'm over probably, probably actually I know I'm overweight, but whatever. (laughs) Uh, But the point is, is that you can look at a person's skin and learn their history. And so that's kind of fascinating to me. You probably didn't intend to it to go in this direction, but since since I have been trying to remain sane these past three months, I've been running kind of crazy. And I found out that they have these things called liver spots, which don't at all relate to your liver, which is good. Um, yeah. But they develop around the age of 40, and if you're exposed to too much sun, your skin can like become discolored. So I started seeing these kind of dark kind of areas on my knuckles and I'm like, Oh my gosh, what is this? You know, I've got to look this up, you know, but I think that's kind of what I'm getting at too. That's something that I think is interesting about it because like, again, you know, skin is something that we all have, you know, we have reactions to seeing somebody in a certain condition. Like you're saying there is kind of almost like an implied history or, you know, something that you can kind of record, you know, what happened to this person almost like a, like a fingerprint or, Mm-hmm. You know, scars, you know, which are, again, prominently featured in, you know, various works or even, I don't know, is there one that also features like what looks like cutting? I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to broach like something, uh, something that's, you know, controversial, like suicide or attempted suicide or something like that. We're going really deep now, so we can always cut this. All right. You've, you've brought up like my, my Achilles heel on this one. So. As the series evolved, I started exploring some other things like self-cutters, track marks, tattoo removal. Now, those don't fit into my original thesis, and I'm trying to understand how those fit into this work. I don't have a total answer for that. Uh, I think they're important things to talk about and I don't make light of it. Like the, the, the cutter series, but I want to, I guess, if nothing else, just put it in your face to look at and think about. Well, I guess with the self cutters, I mean, one could argue that it's, it falls under the non-contagious and I thought about the track marks. And the track marks, it semi-relates. And by the way, everything I'm saying here is just ideas that have been running around in my head. I haven't fully formulated this out yet. Because I made these pieces. Most of them, if you look through the Instagram, you know we're in the last two years. And I had an exhibition at the North Dakota Museum of Art in October. And it was the first time I ever actually saw the work together. And so I hadn't really thought about this stuff. I was just like, pounding this work out as quickly as I could. And so now I'm back to that like self-reflection phase. Anyways, so I did the track marks and addiction initially is voluntary. Well, it's not addiction yet. Choosing to do something like heroin, that's a choice. And then eventually it becomes not a choice. It becomes a disease. And so that's kind of a little bit of a different subject. And then I also realized that I can control the narrative if I put 
because some of the pieces are multiples like you know it's a it's like three brooches are considered it's a triptych piece and so i realized i could control the narrative like if i put it in order of some dots on the skin and then you end with the most you know two pieces later you end up with these really horrible scars from track marks and infected veins and collapsed veins that says one message i could also do it the other way which suggests healing and that was kind of one of those profound moments for me and also back to what you said is like it's really subtle it doesn't change the kind of work i was making the order in which i display them changes your narrative which is actually kind of interesting to think about too and you know when i think about your work too and just you in general i don't think of you as somebody that's making something to kind of like make a a, a statement about this tragedy you know what i mean like oh my gosh there's this heroin epidemic we've got to talk about it i've got to talk about it through my work it sounds like then in a way you're kind of like fetishizing it i know and i have some worries about that <laughs> i do actually uh, and that's why i said i don't take this subject matter lightly but it may be interpreted that way and if that's the case then I'm not going to do it. I'll stop making it. I'm not trying to fetishize it. I'm not trying to make fun of it. Sure. But if that is how people see it, um, I'll stop doing it just completely. But you also kind of like, you know, you frame it, you, everything is presented, you know, in this way to kind of elevate it, you know? And again, I'm, I'm looking at this, this necklace, you know, with, so much ornate detail and oh the the poison ivy one yeah i mean it's just i mean again we're jumping ship to maybe something slightly different but i mean there's i don't know how to describe it it's not like like you're saying it's not like some sort of like accusatory thing and i'm saying at the same time you're not like making a commercial to be like hey guys let's be concerned about this but right. you still want to talk about it you still want to examine it or, or put it in people's faces to think about this this thing you know which is something that's interesting to me well, okay. So the display strategy, you should talk about that a little bit. Uh, the display strategy, they're all framed. Almost all of them are in 10 by 10 frames. Now there's some 11 by 14s and two 16 by 20s. They're all with red velvet and they have a specimen tag at the bottom right-hand corner identifying what they are. The titles of my pieces are literally a number system, a cataloging system. Because I'm trying to reinforce this idea that these are, in fact, just specimens. These are not, this is just factual information, in a way. I can't believe I just used in a way. Oh. <laughs> hate that phrase. And I chose the red velvet because, again, if you go to the mutter or you look at early 1900s, late 1800s medical museum display strategies. They are all in these huge glass cases that are beautiful oak and uh, all this like rich, you, you'll see lots of red velvet for these objects, for their specimens to be displayed on. So I wanted to kind of drive that home that these are just medical displays. I wanted to catalog them. So each one has a specimen. 
so that kind of removes some of the humanity from it. And it tells you what skin condition it is. It tells you what I made it. So hopefully that allows the viewer to distance themselves from the personal side of it. Sure. That makes sense. Like you're able to look at it in a little bit more of a sterile manner, which I don't think is a bad thing. Well, one thing that I definitely want to ask you about too is how much of this is just how awesome is it when you uh, pull something off, you know? (laughs) I mean, there's, there's, such a you know richness to it even the thinking about it as being something that's translucent in terms of the way that you have to kind of work through and craft and kind of figure out how to you know come away with stretch marks or you know whatever it is that you're kind of doing there's got to be like part of it too that is like that love of craft and you know putting all this time into it i was going to joke around and ask you like how come you aren't 3d printing these you know they can do this with silver now and you know okay So, so there's an aspect of that that's still important obviously okay i'm glad you brought that up as i said i'm i don't consider myself very good at fine craft like truly in the sense of fine craft functional utilitarian work but i am so deeply committed to this medium because i thought about this like you know how much easier this would be if i just did this out of like latex like there are makeup artists that do this for horror movies all the time. I could get some latex, cast it, paint it up, boom, done. Way easier. No, I decided that I would only use traditional metalsmithing techniques to complete this because I so celebrate and love my medium. And I want to show people, I hope, something new that can be done with with this. Well, enamels is started by the Egyptians. Like, I feel like I'm doing something new with this medium. And I also, I I admit, this is just the, and any metalsmith who looks at this work will notice, like, the stupid details. I did this, uh, I did a brooch with a varicose veins on it. And if you look at two of the sides, there are a pair of hemostats on either side of that brooch. Typical me, I forged them out. I made them completely functional. They opened and closed. They were on a hinge, and then I soldered them, and they're they're no longer functional. (laughs) But I had to do it. I had to do it just so I could tell that story to another metalsmith. (laughs) I just wanted the challenge of, can I pull this off and I will never show the now becoming a larger box of failure test tiles when it comes to making these skin conditions and there are lots of failures sometimes I nail it right on the first set and other times it's it just doesn't work and that part really excites me I like the idea that well okay I don't like failing but you know, when, when it comes to the firing techniques, I want to get a crusty look and and literal feel to the psoriasis. All right, I know exactly what time I have to pull that. Honestly, three seconds later, it's not the same thing. So that's fun to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm curious too, just to dive into more of the you know particulars in terms of like the the processes and that. How many different types of processes are you using to you know make one of these brooches especially like the ones that are super ornate and 
you know, have all these, uh, you know, stones set, et cetera. The center of the brooch is always done in enamels and that's enamel over copper. And then the frames are fabricated in sterling. There's little parts all around them that are mostly fabricated. Again, this is my, this is my proud, you know, I'm, I'm proud of my skill set and I'm proud of my ability to use traditional techniques to do things. Uh, so I fabricate a lot of stuff. Uh, I do have some cast elements in these pieces as well. And then the stone setting, by the way, I hate stone setting just for the record. I hate stone setting. Always have hated it since undergrad, but I wanted this to look like jewelry. So whether I liked it or not, I had to learn stone setting. So I have almost all faceted stones on these with the exception of the poison ivy. Cause I thought the cabochons resembled the blisters from poison ivy. I wanted it to look like jewelry. So there's a lot of techniques involved, but, but that being said, I have a studio assistant and he loves learning new techniques. That's his favorite thing to do. And he always asks me, what kind of technique do I want to learn next? And I've never learned, I've never approached art making that way. I use whatever technique I need to use and I learn the technique I need to use in order to get the result I want. So like I said, I hate stone setting. It's tedious. <laughs> but in order to get the look that I wanted, okay, I got to learn stone setting. But one thing we haven't talked about is the design of these. I know one of the things that you talked about last time is that everything has to kind of have this purpose. You know, you're very much somebody that has to work methodically. You're using precious materials. You don't want to have to start over. How does the planning process work for, for some of these? Because I've seen, too, on Instagram, there's some that are like, you know, compositions, but then they're literally just like this one that I think is just these fragments from your uh, poison ivy brooch of just these like little leaves, you know. Um, so where does that come into play versus like the drawn elements or planning it out that way? Well, so I, I would I would really love to tell you, because this is what I tell my students to do that I literally draw out every piece and there's 10 drawings behind it. And I finally have the, the final design of it laid out in my sketchbook. Honestly, my sketchbook is actually just a series of numbers, times and recipes <laughs> on how to do things. And sometimes there'll be like a series of loose movement, like or gestural drawings of what I think this could look like. So, Unfortunately, I don't practice what I preach, but it's a combination of can I see it in my head? And then also I do have to draw some of it out. So uh, I, I usually end up doing a little bit of sketching of the piece. But like I said, it's very gestural. Actually, I, I find just writing about it like I'm working on the track marks. And so I knew I wanted to use hypodermic needles to drive that point home. So just sort of writing down like all the things that I could think about with track marks and images like, you know, obviously I could put a spoon in there. That's a little too cliche for me. Uh, I, I could, I could put a candle because, because TV told us that people always use a candle to <laughs> heat up their hair with a spoon. 
Like, uh, I don't think so. I'm just going to stick with the hypodermic needle. And so I kind of write all these things down, whatever occurs to me to go around the frame. Now, in context of the overall show, there are some pieces, some pieces I really want to direct the narrative. Like on the self-cutters, if you follow it, in addition to seeing the various amounts of scars, the surrounding frame of the brooch has progressively more and more razor blades occurring to suggest that this is becoming a more common occurrence. And same thing is going to happen with the track marks. You'll start out with multiple needles and then slow down to very few needles. There are other pieces like a bruise, a contusion. I, I made those look like jewelry. Like there's just this ornamental frame that could come from Art Nouveau or whatever. Because what do you put for a bruise? I took the corner of my bed wrong and I have this bruise on my thigh. But you could also have a bruise from being punched or you could have a bruise from just any number of things. And I didn't want to direct the narrative in that way because I don't want to talk about that. I want to just talk about the, the bruise and the contusion. I don't want to talk about what caused it in this case. So try to be really thoughtful about what frames them. And so you mentioned the poison ivy and I just had this image in my head of how beautiful it would look just to have all these stylized poison ivy leaves just wrapping up around somebody's neck and just sort of climbing on them like they do in nature but it just happens to climb on a person this time. It's interesting because it leads me to think then that you still have this going, you know, that there's still room for this to kind of spin, even if it's in a slightly different path. And it strikes me as something that's in a much better place than, you know, where you were last time, where you were thinking about all these experimentation. It seems like, again, you kind of have this way that you want to keep seeing how to explore this, even if you have to go back to, um, you know, the grind, if you will, of, uh, all your responsibilities and not just being a, a studio, you know, artist and focusing on that. This is the first series that I made. I see an end point to like, I feel like there will be a stopping point under the current way I'm doing. And I'm pretty close to it at this point. I think I have another 30 skin conditions sitting over there and once those are done, I might actually be done with this series. That being said, I've had some little tangents. Uh, for a while, I was exploring three-dimensional objects. So I was making small bowls and enameling in skin conditions, just sort of thinking about, like, well, what would it be like if you went to a dinner party and you're, you're scooping some blue cheese onto a cracker out of a bowl that's covered in acne. Like, what would that be like just to experience that? That's weird. Pretty normal. At one point, I started making tiles, like little square tiles. Because I was thinking about, well, what would it be like if you had an entire backsplash of psoriasis in your kitchen? <laughs> like, how would that change your eating experience? Um, and for anybody listening... I will first of all tell you, my wife told me, absolutely, no, I'm not allowed to do this in our house. But if anybody's listening and they want me to do it and they're willing to lower their resale value on their house, 
I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to install it if you tell me I can have that opportunity. <laughs> so I started making tiles for a while. I, I can think of some places I can take this, but I don't know. And I'm not I'm not going to go any further than this, but I don't know where I am at comfort level with talking about the subjects because I have no experience with them. You have to talk to the HDTV people, get on Fixer Upper and get that like Chip and Joanna Gaines uh, to, to go after this, you know, like oh, yeah. Yeah. forget this shiplap. This would be awesome if there were just all these lesions on your backsplash, you know, <laughs> white, white is so cold, you know, skin is so warm, you know? <laughs> so there, there, there are, were a few tangents with those. I, I see. I really love, I still, I'm sorry. I really do want to just like do an entire shower. Now that you've now that you've this, <laughs> I would I think it'd be so cool to like take a shower in a like floor to ceiling acne and skin tones. Yeah, I mean I think you need a Dali phase, you know. It would be like it would be so creepy and weird and I, I don't know, just like how would that change your experience? Like I'd be fine with it. But imagine if you're like a guest in my house, <laughs> it's just going to, it's it's just going to be unnerving. <laughs> Again, I, I just think the the answer is just to do it. You know, like, like I said, or at least I started to say, you know, having, having seen the Dolly museum now talk about just doing whatever it is that you want to do. Right. I mean, there is so much in there that fits that realm, you know, that I I'm surprised he doesn't have like, <laughs> you know uh acne bowls or you know just right. so, something something that's that absurd you know but i know that too you know in a similar way like we talked about last time in terms of you know maybe having you know a track for a while and you're kind of already talking about maybe how this could end or you know move forward in another direction i would imagine then again there is going to be something that might come back, uh, you know, I don't know if it's the humor of some other stuff or, you know, recently you um, reposted, you know, one of your chain mail pieces that was kind of about SARS from, you know, years and years ago. From graduate school. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I mean, I think, you know, even, even that, I mean, I don't know, there's, there's so many ways for things to be different in the future, which is why it's always interesting to talk to artists too, and especially come back and have these, interviews that are revisits to kind of see where they're at so that you can also, you know, give yourself a hard time for, <laughs> for your, your past uh, statements, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's why that's one of the reasons I agreed to do this because <laughs> I, I thought about the interview that I said, some of the things that I said, and it's like, wow. So I was full of shit <laughs> <laughs> and you can leave that in. <laughs> Well, again, it's great to get caught up with all of, you know, where you're at. Why don't you let everybody know where's the best place to, to check out your work and to stay up to date? Right now, it's it's just my Instagram, which is DW Widmer. I need to totally redo, like all of us, I need to redo my website. My website is, my current website is, has nothing new on it since... 2006 maybe it's an archive <laughs> it's, it's an archive at this point yes so this work is very new and i i don't know how it's going to be received it's 
sometimes I'm scared whenever I show it because I don't know if people are going to think like you said, am I, am I fetishizing this? Uh, but it's very new and I'm still kind of thinking about it. Well, hopefully you at least get somebody to take you up on this shower offer backsplash. <laughs> my, my brother who just bought a house, maybe not so much, but, um, <laughs> I, oh, that would be so awesome. Wouldn't that be so awesome if somebody contacted you and said, Hey, give me his thing. I, I want him to do my shower. Some eccentric, you know, super wealthy person. Right. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I want to have a guest guest house, and we'll just creep them out as much as possible. You know, that's my approach to decorating. Truthfully, <laughs> well, again, I I really appreciate you taking the time. It's always interesting to to get inside your head a little bit in your process. So I appreciate you continuing to do this. This has been a great service that you've done, and really become a major aspect of your own research. So thank you for letting me do it again. Thanks once again to Donovan for joining me. Go and check out his current work by visiting his Instagram and following him at DW Widmere. And of course, any commissions uh, you want to send his way or inquiries, just send a message. If you would like to see some of the archived work that we were talking about or you know, re-examine the first interview that we have, again, that is from 2014. It's episode 94. And some of that work that we talked about is found on his website, DonovanWidmere.com. As long as you're perusing the internet, be sure and check out some of the archived episodes of Studio Break. Again, there's been hundreds now, so go and peruse. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and handy places to listen to. So you can listen in the default player or click those links to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. And of course, if you'd like to leave us some reviews there, it's always helpful for people looking for new podcasts to check out. So we really appreciate it. You can also say hello via social media, so be sure and like our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter at Studio Break, and of course say hello on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. As with almost every episode, I want to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings that explore the suburban landscapes that I live in, visit DavidLinaway.com, or you know, be sure to follow on Twitter, on Instagram at DavidLinaway. And that pretty much wraps announcements this week. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. And I know that there are plenty of interviews coming up. I know that the summer is always thin. It's a little busy right now working on video demos and all sorts of things for teaching. So I apologize, but there are going to be more regular podcasts coming out as we slowly approach the fall. I hope your studio practice is awesome. You're making all sorts of great stuff and staying safe out there. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.